One could say that uh, our journey on the, in the Tibetan tradition is uh, a journey of uncovering our inner beauty for the benefit of all. Yeah, make contact with your inner beauty, have glimpses, make contact, and then actually to identify with the inner beauty. That would be called awakening. Yeah, to uh, relax the identification with what you believe you, you are and what we believe in Western culture, what we are. To relax that identification into your inner beauty, into your Buddha nature, into the Buddha within. There's like two parts in that. First, the pointing out of that inner beauty having glimpses of that, which is that which in us, which is already free and connected and open and empathetic and wise and generous and beautiful, to make contact with that. And the other part is uh, to look at that which seems to obstruct that inner beauty. And we are looking at these uh, conditioned patterns, processes, point of view of the teachings on karma and from the point of view discoveries of trauma, trauma research. And yesterday I talked about how the only way out is through and that we have this instinctive tendency to avoid pain and there's a danger that we would uh, use uh, our spiritual practice for doing that transcending pain going under it or above it so as a buddhist practitioner we have we take this pledge this commitment to turn towards the pain. And that's very difficult. In a way, we long for it, but on the other hand, we wish we wouldn't need to do that. We wish we could do that kind of wonderful yoga retreat in Costa Rica, everything is perfect and you emerge from that with the perfect body and it's all nice and it's all like Instagram style spiritual practice and I'm kind of exaggerating here but uh, so it's, it's good to acknowledge there might be tendencies like that uh, in our own practice as if there's a way and our whole culture is around that yeah entertainment, medication, and so on, just to numb out, just to create enough distractions. The unwanted and the unmet within us stays there, down there somewhere. But what we start to acknowledge in the, in the exploration of karma and trauma is that karma and trauma, they stay dormant. 
we don't get away with anything. It's not just we, we continue to travel and then the baggage falls off by itself. Yeah, yeah, it's in the past. It's just like, I don't want to look there. Yesterday I also said that karma and trauma are stored within the body and it stays dormant. And what we don't touch and heal in this life, it's being carried further on. And here the preparation practices comes in. How important it is in this work, if you, call, if you are called for it, and I don't want to convince anyone, but if we, if we are called to this healing path. And uh, most of the people around us are not called yet. There's so many people who would never do, they never would look inside. And sometimes you talk about provisional and uh, this, uh, that method, like healing to see the, that's healing. part of the gradual path. Uh -huh. Yeah, so it's uh, it's not happening. No, the direct uh, path would be what I said: uh, the glimpse practices, starting to have while we are on the healing path. Mm -hmm. At the same time, have moments where our inner beauty just comes forward, mm -hmm. and that can be facilitated through self-inquiry and pointing out instructions or places, people, where this inner, inner beauty, the divine within us, the sacred within us, uh, comes to the foreground. And we find ourselves in the presence of that which is bigger than us, and in the same time it's us. But is, is it enough with uh, just seeing and being with it? Does it, it require also to reason this out? Yeah, it's. Uh, it could be. It's probably. Some kind of support. It's. Uh, it's good. It could be probably helpful to have a mixture, mm. uh, but uh, in this weekend I emphasize the most important ingredient, and that is an empathic looking, mm. a loving looking, loving awareness combined with uh, vipassana, with insight into the impermanence of these patterns, that they are flexible and dynamic, uh, that they change moment by moment, and then even going deeper into the recognition that they, they don't have any core, they don't have any substance to them. We are actually not, it seems to be that we are locked in these patterns, when we look closely at them, we, we find that, that there's nothing there, that they are made up. But that would be quite an advanced, like a diff, it's, not, it's not so difficult to understand what I just said, but to actually experience a panic attack like that, that's very, very difficult. It's possible, uh, but it's difficult. So in the meantime, we use those approaches which actually 
bring us some some relief, some some healing, some openness, more lightness, creating a sacred space, creating a safe space. So so important. And that's what I want to emphasize in our first meditation. The six preliminary practices in Tibetan Buddhism. So now we have to be aware that we have a legacy of 300 years of materialistic reductional scientific view. So anything which we can't see, which we can't prove, uh, doesn't exist. It's very likely that some of us, we have like, uh, like a deep suspicion towards anything which looks like religious, which looks like ritual. And uh, that's, int- that's an interesting pattern to, to observe uh, in you. Yeah? It's, it's understandable. And, uh, uh, but uh, as a whole culture, we have disconnected from the sacred, from the divine, from spirit. There was a benefit in that, yeah? turning to the materialistic, turning to reasoning, yeah? 300 years ago, starting. But we went too far. And uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is a good example on how uh, a scientific thinking uh, based on reasoning, based on research, doesn't exclude the spiritual, the sacred, the divine. Our scientific background, our, the way we think, the way we are educated, makes it sometimes difficult to perceive a dimension of spirit which is all around us. I mean, could you, for example, accept that here in this room are beings which our eyes can't perceive? I'm just asking, yeah? For, for a Tibetan, that would be just the normal thing. And actually, if we tune in into that subtle realm, we can start to feel these energies ourselves. To create a safe space, a sacred space in your life is so important. In your flat, what is in the center of the mandala of your flat? Maybe not so much here, but most of the time it's a couch and a television. That's the altar. And uh, through the television, we are brainwashed into needing to be productive and buying things because that's the purpose of life. Because you are just brain jelly and life is about avoiding pain, having some nice entertainment, being productive, and then die. The way we lived our life has no consequences. I'm exaggerating there. I don't think that everyone has that as the main vision of life. Yeah? But, but, it's, uh, uh, but what we probably all, all know is how difficult it is sometimes to kind of jump off from this rat race of this hamster wheel. It, it, it almost feels like we're doing something wrong. We're failing yeah? and we get judged by our parents or, or the parents in our mind. So the, uh, creating the safe space, 
which then makes it possible for us really to have the courage to look at the processes within us, our conditioning, our habits, our addiction, our violence, our jealousy, our anxiety, our sadness, and to look at it. To look at it without being overwhelmed by it and with less identification. We create a sense of, through uh, bringing this, this body and this mind and this speech into a sacred space, we, we create a sense that there's more and we are supported by that. And then we are able to, to work with the content. Creating the sacred space, I really encourage you to, um, to explore some of the preparation practices you know, so what, and, and be creative with it. And uh, I encourage you to create a sacred space in your life, in your home. Maybe not in the center, at least at the side, that, that it becomes part of our life. Uh, that's what you do in, in traditional practices like Tonglen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so, in each uh, meditative practice, in each contemplative practice, we are encouraged to start where we are and to be in contact with what we bring into this sacred space. You, in the traditional teachings on karma, for example, one of the opponent powers, the, the remedies which you apply when you purify karma, is the remedy of regret. And regret means that you are asked to really take the responsibility of, your of what you did and feel, and feel it. And of course, again, we don't want to do that. It's easier to blame others. And for us then, it's, yeah, so I could now continue and talk and talk and talk. So part of the preliminary practice, uh, which will be you know, in our first meditation, is taking refuge. I'm not going to do it in a formal way, but it's kind of in there our vision, yeah, the intention we bring into our practice. As if you're familiar with the Lam Rim, you have the three levels. The first intention is the well-being for this life. The second intention is liberation from suffering altogether. And the third in intention is liberation for the benefit of all, which would, would be bodhicitta. And again, there it is important that we that we are honest with ourselves. What is it? What make? What moves us into practicing? And it's completely acceptable and fine 
if right now in our life what we want to have out of our spiritual practice is well-being in this life. That's a good start. I mean, genuine well-being. Not well-being coming through shopping and entertainment, but genuine well-being. And then when we go deeper, we start to experience and understand that's actually quite modest. That kind of intention. That liberation is possible. And then from there we can even go further. We can we start to understand that we are connected with, with everything. There is not a private awakening. It's either all of us or nobody. It's a human project, not a private project. Awakening for the benefit of all. So, and then there is uh, the part of the preparation practice which is uh, bonding, bonding to a, to a symbol, a teacher, feeling connected, protected, inspired. And while we are doing that, we stay aware that the people, the symbols, the lineage, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, uh, that they are provisional projections which help us to connect with our own inner Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, which are our own inner beauty. That uh, practice of bonding, of connecting, uh, connecting with the body, connecting with the environment, connecting with other people, connecting with mentors, that's also one of the main things which supports us in the work with trauma, because trauma disconnects us. We, we lose trust. This possibility to devote yourself to something which you trust so important. And then acknowledging that that is very difficult for us because we are suspicious. We have been hurt. The innocence of the trust we had as children was shattered. Uh, what is interesting in the preparation practices is also to be aware of that which creates blockages, that which creates fears. And it can show up in all kinds of <coughs> thoughts, belief systems, but you can also feel it in the body. I mean, some people feel a contraction in the moment they come into a room like that. It makes them uncomfortable. They can't stand it. They get afraid. They disconnect. Because there's nothing there you can trust. It's stupid. It's superstitious. It's naive. These, uh, these patterns within us, 
they are within us because something happened to us. So again, it's not about judging it or feeling you should feel differently. Sometimes these more traditional practices, what they can do is to just show us our fears, our rejections, our belief systems. And we can become curious about them. And they are allowed uh, in a room like this. I mean, the Dalai Lama is not asking us to, asking us to come into this room and feel, wow, I'm so inspired. Yeah. That might happen for some, somehow, even in Sweden. Strange thing, which is almost like, I mean, how would you explain something like that? And it's such a secular culture that there's uh, people who come to a place like this and, and something opens. Whereas for 99% a place, a sacred place, would be a place of contraction, a place of suspicion, a place of alertness. They want something from me. They want to, this is a cult or something like that. And that's fine. It's something to look at, something to be curious about, because it's not you. So it's, it doesn't make sense to try with violence to, to feel that openness, that connection, that surrender. Although, I guess, many people, they are afraid of it, but they also long for it. It's a kind of battle in between, in, in, inside. Okay, so let's settle in, into our sacred space here as a Sangha. Uh, yesterday I also, I also mentioned the the value of bringing uh, our attention to the posture and uh, the meditation posture is, is a good way to increase your mindfulness, your awareness of how you hold yourself and then you bring that mindfulness or that awareness also into daily life, you know, how you hold yourself in daily life, how you sit, uh, how you walk. And then we take the time to slide into present moment awareness. With open or closed eyes. Acknowledging uh, what you bring with you into this moment. And there's a shift uh, of your attention away from being in trance and entangled in the radio station of the narrative self, radio program, uh, What About Me? So the, the beam of attention relaxes 
the sense of unhooking from the head, from, from the thoughts, from the mental images. Not an attempt to stop these inner voices, uh, but to emphasize them less. And instead, awareness, the beam of attention drops into the body. Maybe initially into the whole body, with a bit of adjustment uh, of the posture. Remember the posture is flexible, it's alive. So there's subtle movements. And you become curious about what happens if you shift the, your hip a little or the openness of your chest, the position of your head. So you allow your skeleton, your body to settle into an alignment, into a balance with gravity. So that the earth beneath you can hold you up and you can relax into that. When we take our seat like that, it's such a beautiful gesture because with this, when you're taking your seat, uh, you immediately join uh, the lineage of the Buddha. And whenever you assume this posture, you, you're never sitting alone. There's hundreds of thousands of people right now with us here. And not only in Buddhism. And the breath can be an ally in this uh, shifting down. You can bring the flow of the in and out breath gently into the foreground. together breath, together with awareness, becomes like a, an embrace of your body, of your inner life as it is. And we're breathing together. Allow yourself to find a place of rest in the midst of your experience, as it is. And resting happens when you relax the struggle with what is.
And as Perma often says, the most important ingredient in our meditation practice is Maitri, loving kindness. And we always start with that which is closest to us, and that's the processes within your body which are happening right now. Feelings, thoughts, your mood. And sometimes it is difficult for us to connect with the capacity of Maitri from within. So, and that's why we call upon our mentors, male and female, Buddhist and non-Buddhist, people we have met, people we are inspired by through their writings, through the myths around them. And here it is important to uh, be creative and personal So for me, it's the, the Buddha, the Dalai Lama, Lama Sopa Rinpoche, Jesus. Some other teachers from different traditions. Tara. And it's not so important to have like a clear visual image, but because we all uh, connect with uh, symbols and other people in different ways. So for some, it's the voice, the eyes, a touch, a smell. So if there's uh, kind of religious figures, then they are maybe too much, then connect with a loving grandmother or your favorite aunt or uh, so someone who provided you with moments of being seen and loved. And so that's the quality we want to invite into our sacred space. We are doing this together, so together as a group, we create a field. And we are not looking for something dramatic. start to get a sense that you're bathing in the loving gaze. And that whatever moves within you, sensations, thoughts, sounds, feelings, that they come and go within this loving space, within loving awareness. Maybe what is more in the foreground for you now is the processes which uh, obscure 
the sense of safety, the sense of being loved. And that's valuable. Where are they in the body? How do they feel? And let them be there. breaths, you can bring that quality, that light, that presence into the body. And with the out-breath, you share this here with us and then beyond. Turning, resting. The sense of your body being made of matter relaxes and you get a sense of the experience that your body is energy. because you're welcomed, you're safe here in this sacred space together with your brothers and sisters, your fellow travelers supported, protected by the lineage of the Buddha. This sacred space, this safe space is your home. Then you notice it, you get caught again, and then you slide back, you drop back into the body, and open again to the loving gaze, bathing you from the toes to the top of your head, from all directions.
is the dissolution of the refuge field just dissolves into light, into maitri, into healing light, into healing presence, which uh, fills your whole body, every cell opens like a flower in the morning sun. And you become aware of the Buddha within, the Tara within. Possibly a bit at the heart level, not a sacred space. If you want to localize it in the body, it would be at the heart level, the heart chakra. And the heart chakra opens like a flower. And from the Tara within, the whole body is filled. And then from your body, it starts to radiate out to the pores of your body. Again, here into this group and the people who participate online. from Buddha to Buddha, from Tara to Tara. If you acknowledge your inner beauty, you see that in other people as well. And seeing the inner beauty in other people helps them to connect with that. Seeing the divine in me, the sacred, and that makes me see the divine within you. Namaste. And then with that view, the eyes of the Dalai Lama, the heart of Tara, we can move into the pain and witness, empathic witnessing empathic witnessing of your own struggles and empathic witnessing of the struggles of others. And then we can conclude a practice like this with an aspirational prayer. May I awaken to my inner beauty so that I am an instrument of the Buddha within, for the benefit of all. So I retrieved some of the, some of my preparation.
by going to the text this morning. Fortunately, I woke up at five o'clock, so I, I had a lot of time. So I, I would like to kind of uh, repeat some of the things I said yesterday, maybe uh, then go this afternoon into methods of healing. So I would like to start, I think this is the first time that I'm sitting in front of a computer while I teach. Uh, I don't like it, but it's because I have not really internalized this material. It's, it's new for me. So next time when I talk about this, and this will help me, this weekend will help me to talk about this. It was so important uh, to explore material in, in a way that it, it gets internalized. It's better to uh, keep your readings uh, short, really take the time to digest, so that even if you are not sitting in a place than I, but that you have that, that insights and that practices available yeah, in daily life. So I want to start uh, with a quote from Miles Neal. This is from an article, you find that online if you Google karma and trauma. I think it's published in the Shambhala Sun. It's like an online magazine from the Shambhala, Shambhala publication. Sent. I'm not sure, but I think it's there. So he says in that, it's an interview. Uh, with uh, someone who's uh, interviewing him. And he says at one point, one could say that both trauma and karma keeps us feeling trapped in an endless cycle. Yeah. Karma and trauma keeps us trapped in an endless cycle. And so maybe you can recognize that, even if, if we just look at this life, there, there seems to be like same relational patterns, same experiences, same, 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 same. And then, and then you kind of maybe break free from a relationship or from a job or, and then the same happens again. You find yourself in similar situations. Uh, is feeling trapped with uh, with an anxiety, with uh, uh, with with inner processes, and, and it's just like you feel like you can't get out of that prison. We are not completely free to perceive things clearly in the moment. We are not completely free to experience things clearly in the moment. So we're disconnected from reality through perceptual filters. Yeah, so that's the distortion of reality. And uh, we, we, are not, we, we are not connecting with the situation as it is or with the person as it is. Because we bring our past into the moment.
maybe you are you've heard this metaphor before it's from Shandakirti this Indian master one of the most important commentators of the writings of Nagarjuna and he uses the the example of a glass of water yeah I don't have a glass but like water yeah so for us this is water for a hungry ghost this is pus shit blood for god not not like a creator god christian god like for 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 a being with a pure vision this is nectar that's the perceptual filters and you might ask so what is really there different answers in different buddhist schools but in the prasangika madhyamika school they would say there's nothing there everything ex exists merely labeled we create the things who are what they are for us through our perceptual filters through our karma so hungry ghost um, we don't need to understand them like as different kinds of beings we can understand these six realms uh, as like summaration of certain karmic conditioning within us which distorts our perception so let's say the hungry ghost pattern within you is that dissatisfaction that hunger uh, which nothing <laughs> which nothing it's empty uh, which, which nothing uh, which nothing can really satisfy so let's say you have that that karmic uh, potential uh, that karmic complex of a hungry ghost so where does that come from in the teachings on karma the explanation of where it comes from was actions in the past what kind of actions stinginess lack of generosity and stinginess and lack of generosity comes from previous actions yeah? so there is no beginning to that it's an ongoing stream we act stingy we manifest a lack of generosity and that affects our perceptual filters the way we perceive the world if you are not generous you start to perceive a world of lack you could say you, you get a poverty view and you could be a multi-millionaire and still feel like that how much money do you do you need you, know, you can ask a multi-millionaire and he says just a few millions more but that's not true because his perceptual filters will always be in a world of lack of not enough so that's one part of karma it changes our perceptual filters based on how we acted in the past but that's not the only thing in karma the other part of karma is habitual patterns how we respond then to that perception 
fear, anger, uh, inconsideration. Yeah? So that's the, the, the other part of karma. Based on things in the past, based, based on experiences of having responded to similar situations, there's not enough, there's not enough resources in that particular way. And that makes, of course, completely sense. It's habits. We are talking about habits. So it's both. It's our perception, how the world appears to us, and it's our impulses and urges how to respond to that which we create, but we don't realize. We, we think that's how the world is. And that's karma. Yeah. Trauma is very similar. Uh, later I will say a bit more about trauma. Because also trauma change, changes the way how we perceive the world. Like if you know, one uh, result of a traumatic experience, and again, as I said yesterday, I'm not, I'm not may, I mainly don't talk about big, big kind of trauma. Yeah? I talk about the kind of common uh, things. Yeah? The one result of that kind of trauma is mistrust, disconnection, feeling disconnected feeling separated, a really contraction. And that changes the perception. You see people in a different way. You actually, you, are, you don't ever allow someone to become so close that that kind of perception will change. But there is actually someone I can trust, someone I can love and someone who loves me. With that perceptual filters, your filter, you are not, you're not going to see that person. Instead, actually, and that's also part of karma, so I, I said karma is uh, based on previous action, creates impulses, urges. So part of these impulses and urges, which karma causes, is that we are drawn to certain people in certain situations. It's quite magical. I mean, how, how, how do we manage to meet you know, that kind of partner again and again from the thousands of other people who are around? <laughs> but we are drawn to them. Sim something similar happens in trauma. So in the trauma research shows how when we have experienced when we have experienced trauma that we are drawn to situations where that same pattern can run where the same kind of experience happens yes uh, to me it uh, i hear that you're talking about two kinds of trauma the trauma uh, the trauma that you can experience in the life you live now but mm. for being a karmic experience, you must, you should be in trauma 
uh, in lives before. Yeah. Um, maybe I will understand more after this weekend. Mm. But what kind of trauma? Maybe it's not important. Teachings. Yes, uh, I. <coughs> the way I look at it, this uh, alaya vijnaya. You know, the storehouse consciousness in which this stuff is stored, I, I see it as something which goes back into infinity. I wouldn't uh, seek explanations for certain patterns within me, certain processes, uh, not only in this life. And, you know, and we all know that Every baby is already born with, as a person. I mean, they are not like blank sheets and then something happens to them. Different children grow up in very similar conditions, but they emerge from it very differently. Where does that come from? Yeah, so the Buddhist teaching would say that comes from, from patterns, and perceptual, perception, perception filters which are based on actions word, of word, body and mind in previous lives. But I don't want to like uh, emphasize that point so much. Yeah? So because I, I want to keep this uh, accessible to uh, to a broader audience. <laughs> they feel us they, they, they make us feeling trapped in an endless cycle of patterns we are not completely free to perceive things clearly in the moment beyond what we have already experienced in the past yeah? we, it's impossible for us to go beyond what we have experienced in, in the past we are locked we can't, it's difficult for us to approach people, situations, or what happens in your life in a new way, in a fresh way, in a different way. We, 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 we tend to be stuck in the way we look at things, in the way we do things. I mean, the good message here is there's a way out. What's the way out? The way out is through. That's the bad news. <laughs> and of course, people try to sell us a way out without getting through. Yeah, that's what we still hope for, that there is a way out without getting through. But there isn't. At least that's what I believe. And we are not completely free to respond freshly in the moment because we are compelled by what we always have done. We are not free to respond freshly, new. But we can work on it. We are actually not locked into these patterns. We can work on it. That's what a lot of Buddhist practice is about, yeah? Like to establish new, more wholesome 
responses to what is happening in our life. We start to contemplate, for example, in the Lojong teachings, which are exactly about that. The Lojong teaching, the mind transformation teaching, it's exactly about that. Recognizing, ah, this is how I usually respond to this kind of situations. I, I attack back if, I, if I'm criticized, could be one of those. Recognizing that, taking responsibility for it, which is difficult and painful. Having a vision and inspiration to change and to seek out methods how that can happen. And if you then establish in this, there's a little gap between, there's a little gap between what happens and how we respond to it. There's a little gap. In meditation practice, in our spiritual practice, we, we learn to, to use that gap. And we start to understand, we start to experience, hey, yeah, I, use, I, 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 I always responded like that. No, I, I, one, one really clear experience of that I had with my mother. Like until five years ago, you know, I, I'm now 57. It's amazing, yeah? but it's, it's kind of embarrassing to say this. <laughs> but until five years ago, when I was my mother, I regressed. So until 50, let's say, <laughs> until 50, I, rem I remember five, five years ago before she got sick, I kind of, when I left my mother, I needed to connect with some peers to grow up again, you know? <laughs> to feel as an adult man. And then something changed, changed suddenly. And that was so, so I, I rejoiced so much in that. It, I, it made me so happy. So she did the, her, her normal things, yeah? just what she did. But it, it went through. Somehow, and uh, it's connected with my practice, somehow, the response to the same things, she said the things with the same voice, with the same look. Yeah? It didn't cause the same inner response in me. So I, I almost reached enlightenment at that point. <laughs> I mean, if you can do it with your mother, yeah? you can do it with everyone. It's, it was a, it was a major, a, a major event of awakening. I, I would never call that uh, awakening uh, seriously, but it is. Yeah. So it kind of you suddenly awake or uh, you, you wake up of, out of a certain trance. Wow! I can respond differently, and I do. Uh, yes. So for me, uh, I remember uh, not so long ago, I was in a conflict at uh, work and uh, this came up as well. Uh, for me, you know, um, typically I would react and maybe yes. get angry back. But then I stopped in this gap, but it's very shaky. I feel very, it's very shaky yeah. to stay there. Yeah. Uh, what did, yeah. So I don't know if it's a question, but what is it that makes it so shaky? I yeah. mean, because it's, 
Mm. It's kind of hard. I mean, yeah, it's very hard. First to recognize it, it's it's okay. Mm. But then, then it's like you, yeah, almost physical. Then I got uh, proud afterwards yeah. because I felt uh, okay. I didn't go back to my old habits and get angry, yeah. so I felt I grew up, like mm. you say. Mm. But it's, uh, I mean, it's strange for me that it's so, mm. yeah. Yes. What what makes it so hard? Is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah that's question. a good question. Yeah. Something to explore also yeah. in, in our own experience there. Uh, one thing uh, that could be one part of that is um, like when, when it's an impulse of anger and here anger I mean the kind of self-righteous hatred anger yeah? so I'm not talking about healthy aggression yeah? I'm talking about that that kind of anger which we later regret where, where we feel I, I should that was not good. It didn't help the situation. It didn't help me. It didn't help the situation. And I didn't, I didn't get what I wanted. I couldn't communicate what I wanted. Yeah. So we want to kind of take it back because it was not the most productive or uh, beneficial thing to to do. Yeah? So healthy aggression is something else. It's a very important point. Yeah. When we look into anger, that kind of anger, that kind of uh, clash of anger. Yeah? A disturbed, a distorted anger. It is usually covering up feelings of vulnerability, feelings of sadness, feelings of helplessness. So in the gap, this comes up. And anger, the, the, the energy of anger is, is, is not nice, but it's a little nicer than Makes feeling that. Safe, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like there's a moment of uh, yeah. kind of a pseudo power, yes. or, and 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 it's a protector. Yes. Mm. yes. So mm. this is also important to when we recognize patterns like this, to acknowledge they have been developed in our system as protectors. Yes. The empathetic look is so important also there that it is something, a process within you, which was set into motion at one point to, in order to survive. Yeah. So th that's one thing. The, the, another aspect of this could be uh, our sense of identity, identification, which sits in these patterns. Yeah? This is who I am. It's, it, it's really, it really sucks. But I, at least I know who I am. I'm the guy who is like a grenade. Uh, I'm explode sometimes, and I don't care who's hit. Yeah. And that's who I am. Wow. Yeah. Ah. Maybe it's not so bad anyway because they deserve it. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's like you know who you are. But then, uh, if that becomes more flexible. There is also then this confusion, hey, yeah, who am I actually? Yeah, it's a, that kind of uh, discomfort, confusion, groundlessness of, uh, the of, the, of a dawning of the experience of no self. But it's also a freedom. It's a freedom also. It can have both 
so and that is like uh, sometimes almost together, yeah. But there can be also like uh, it can alternate. Well, yeah? Where I'm in this after, like after at this moment after I said sounds like that wasn't that dangerous, you know, to yeah, to yes. not react. Yeah. So it becomes more liberating yes. to start to say, you know, if I. But the day, the problem is that I don't catch myself in this gap all the time because it goes so quick, right? So, yes. but then if you catch yourself, and mm. I kind of think of those these moments now that it's also liberating because uh, yeah. I don't need to react and uh, I'm still a good person, you know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. Kind of. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's important to have experiences like that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that that. Um, that it, yeah, as you said, that it is not dangerous. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you said uh, anger is uh, common that it uh, cover up uh, insecurity or mm. sadness or fear mm. or something. And if uh, the habit had changed from more easily get angry to the opposite to be become mm. more uh, sad so that one uh, get tears in my eyes. That's a progress. Oh, <laughs> it's so hard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I I sit here with tears now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I tell you, uh, this is the hardest thing. That, that's why the preparation practices are so important. And that's also, you know, do you really want to sign up? <laughs> Actually, I asked this question. Uh, I had a conversation with a teacher, Tibetan teacher from Nepal, hmm. before, uh, between uh, 9 and 10. And then I, the, the subject was anger. Hmm. So I got opportunities to just put one question. And this was it. He gave advice for uh, anger, and then I said, "Could uh, sadness uh, be? Uh, could you take the same method for, for sadness? Because nowadays that mm. reaction uh, is more that way, not mm. the other." Then he said. Uh, yeah, it could be the same, but maybe not a cold shower. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it could be, but he said for anger, take a cold shower to mm. break break mm -hmm. the the pattern, mm. and then breath. Maybe mm. he used to say, take a breath, mm. and then then reflect mm. on the use of anger. So it could be done the same way with the, the sadness. Mm. But then then he added uh, for the reflection impermanent. It won't stay.
uh, why lose hope? Uh, we can always ask for help if it's uh, something difficult or we have some friends mm. who we can turn to and also I can tell this in this environment mm. because I feel safe mm. here. Mm. Yeah? And then he said what I found most um, important that was determination to go yes. through what you are yeah. talking about. Yeah. And courage to really be free. Yeah. I think it's the most. Uh, mm. Otherwise, you give up. Mm. It's not pleasant to sit here mm. with tears in my eyes and mm. talk about it. Mm. Uh, still, I can laugh a little bit. Mm. Yeah. What do you say about this? Yeah, yes. I think I can recognize uh, yeah. what I also say. Yes. I'm very happy I asked the question. The other people in the Zoom meeting, I only know one of them. Mm. <laughs> but still, I don't know. Mm. I have five minutes, then I have to disconnect. Mm. I know the teaching very well. So it's so important to have somebody to ask who, who uh, can give a good, good some advice and then we can try it out. Mm. Mm. Not it's not effective for you. Mm. Yeah. Can we have a pause now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but this, this is so this is so important. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's have 20 minutes break. <laughs>